The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Tonight's the last night of this four-week series. Uh, that, how's the volume? Can you all hear me okay? So, uh, last night of the four-week series on the meditation section of the Eightfold Path. So the first evening we, we, we gave an overview of the Four Noble Truths, the Fourth Noble Truth, which is the Eightfold Path, and um, just talked about all the different sections, in, including this meditation section, which are the last three elements of the Eightfold Path. Then two weeks ago, we focused on what's called right effort. Last week, right mindfulness. And so tonight, the, we'll talk about the eighth element of the Eightfold Path, which is uh, right concentration. Actually, the word in the Pali language is samadhi that gets translated as concentration. And um, concentration is probably not the best word, although it's the one that everyone uses, so we'll continue to, to do that. It, the, the actual meaning of the word samadhi is um, undistracted. And so um, an undistracted mind can take uh, more than one form. I want to say a little bit about that. It turns out there's not just one way that right samadhi or right concentration is understood. In the Theravada Buddhist Pali language tradition, there's several different understandings that are quite different. And one of the reasons there tends to be a lot of confusion out there about what's concentration, how does it fit in with insight meditation, is there's not just one way. So what I want to do tonight is talk about very clearly what the different understandings are and how concentration fits in with insight meditation. So um, we have to have a little bit of background first in order to understand this. So first, these two different, I'll name at least two main ways that concentration or samadhi can be understood. And there may be other ways or other gradations in between, but these are two main ways. If you were to, you know, pick any meditation subject, like meditating on the breath, or it could be many, many different forms of meditation, and you were to concentrate your mind or practice concentrate, you may not be very good at concentrating in the beginning, but if you would keep bringing your mind back to this breath or whatever you're doing, visualizations, mantras, I'll keep, I'll use the word breath tonight, but you can substitute in when I say breath, just and so many other kinds of, we're not going to spend time talking about the, the many ways you can practice, but just know when I say breath, there's many, many types of practice out there. If you were to focus on your breath, as I'm guessing some or maybe many of you do, and over time as you strengthened the ability of your mind to concentrate, you could get to a place where you got pretty good at concentrating. In fact, you could say, get, stay so focused on your breathing, for example, that you wouldn't notice other things much as you tended to get more and more concentrated on the breath because you're just staying on this one thing. And an example I often use is, it's kind of a, kind of to be a little humorous about it, but you know, there's sort of this stereotype humorous image of, you know, there's the, Husband, he's at the breakfast table reading the newspaper, and the wife's saying, so this isn't meant to be sexist, please excuse me, it could go either sexes, but you know, this is an image, right? You get like the, and the wife's saying, honey, honey, and the man's, the guy's not hearing her, because he's so engrossed in this one thing, the paper, and then finally goes, oh, what, sorry, sorry, you know, right? That's an image. That's actually an example of getting kind of engrossed, if you will, or, it, it, it gives the idea of you can be so fixed, your attention in one thing, that you just don't notice something. You didn't, in this example, you didn't notice the sound. So you can see, and some of you have experienced this, as we got better and better at being able to concentrate, your ability to stay wholeheartedly your, with your attention on the breath would strengthen. 
And if you took it far enough, you could get to the point where ultimately you could stay just completely on this one point, in this case the breath, so much that not only would you not notice any other sounds, you wouldn't even really notice your body much. And in fact, you could take it so far enough where you would lose awareness of your body, of sounds, thoughts wouldn't be arising. Basically, no other experience would be there except this one point because you're so good at concentrating on one thing. You've taken it that far. That would be kind of the ultimate, the culmination. If you did that in this example, it would be, we're talking about concentration, being able to concentrate at a kind of at a point, if you will. I mean, not for you mathematicians, people have come up to me and said, well, what's a point? But, you know, in one place, I should say, on one thing. Um, that is sometimes called one-pointed concentration. Or you'll hear, some of you have heard the terminology fixed concentration because your mind's fixed on one thing. And I call it exclusive concentration because it's exclusively on one thing or one point. Or another way to think about it is it excludes all other awareness if you took it far enough. So you get the idea? And one more thing to say about this kind of concentration is that, well, two things. One is is that there's gradations, so you don't have to be all the way to the point where literally there's just no other awareness. You can just get pretty strongly focused on one. So there's a whole range, but ultimately we're talking about you could take it to this point. If you took it all the way, uh, a key feature of this kind of concentration is that you lose awareness of the changing flow of experiences. As we said, you can't feel the change of your, your experience of your body anymore or thoughts because you're just really locked in on one. It's just like I can put my attention on something and, boy, it's really there. So you get the idea of that? You, and, the, and that's the key thing to remember from this. You lose the experience of changing, of the awareness of changing experiences. That's one kind of undistractedness, right? Well, there's another kind of undistractedness that's equally strong or deeply concentrated, but it's a different kind of concentration. And in this kind of concentration or samadhi, rather than awareness of changing, rather than changing experiences stopping, the mind itself comes to a stop. I'm using the word term mind kind of in a sloppy way because I don't know what the mind is, so we're just going to use the term and just however. The mind comes to stillness even while awareness of changing experiences continues. It's a different kind of stopping. And that narrow concentration, right, that fixed one-pointedness, you didn't have awareness of change. So that's what stopped. In this second kind, rather than being in exclusive, I call it an inclusive awareness because it's the opposite. The mind, rather than becoming narrow, is actually sometimes what people call choiceless awareness. The mind actually can be quite open and broad, but just as deeply still. So, so qualitatively, it's a completely different state. And, and also, if you haven't experienced these things, we're talking about... You know, it's hard, we're just pointing towards something. You know, it, it's hard to sometimes describe some of these experiences. But really there is this sense of the mind is just stopped. It's never distracted, it's unmoving, it's super clear. Just, just as deeply undistracted. But there's a way, but, but not on one point. It's just the mind's come to a standstill. And the way I think of this, if any of you know the, well-known quote from Ajahn Chah where he talks about a still forest pool and he says, make your mind like a still forest pool. Many rare and wonderful animals will come to drink at the pool. Many kinds of experiences will come and go, but you will be still. And then he goes on to describe, right? It's a different kind of stillness. Very, very different. And they really are equally deep or strong concentration, just just it's a different thing coming to a stop, if you will. All right.
So let me just stop for a second. Get the basic idea of these two kinds of concentration? A couple of people are kind of going, got it? Yeah, 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 okay. Well, we'll go on and we'll see. Let me just, I have to give you um, a, a brief bit of history here, but it's going to be real brief, like four minutes tops. So don't worry if you don't like this kind of stuff. But you have to know this to, under, to understand right samadhi. So after the Buddha died, you know, there were a number of different schools of Buddhism that, um, that arose. Maybe the traditional number is 18, but that's not so important. And all of those early schools of Buddhism died out for different historical, many different reasons. The only one of the early schools to survive today is what's called Theravada Buddhism, right? That's what influences the insight Vipassana meditation scene. It's the kind of Buddhism, style of Buddhism taught in, practiced in Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, I guess Laos, uh, Cambodia, maybe. Anyway. So, and the, Canonical texts, or we should say the, the teachings were preserved in the Pali language in Theravada Buddhism. And the discourses of the Buddha and the, uh, the teachings, the doctrine were preserved in what are called the Pali suttas. You, some of you may have heard the Sanskrit word sutra. The sutras. In Pali, it's sutta. It just means thread. It's, it's related to the English word suture. So, um, um, so anyway, so, um, it was preserved in this Pali tradition, and that's, you know, people quote the suttas all the time. That's these discourses, you know, that you can go in the library here where they've got the books are in there, and, right? So that's all our teachings come out of that. Um, they evolved over time, and we won't get into the whole history, but that's the basic thing to remember that is these Pali suttas. In addition, over the centuries, a whole body of commentar commentarial literature arose, the Pali commentaries. Because there's a lot of places in the suttas that, some of it's clear, but there's some places in there it's, it's not that clear and could be interpreted in more than one way, so it's pretty understandable that people wanted to try to explain the meanings and some of these things that were vague, it's natural, and so all these commentaries arose with, arose with a particular understanding. And about, I'm going to say 900 years, but this is probably as good a number as any, but we don't really know exactly. But we'll just say 900 years or so after the Buddha died, this scholar monk named Buddha Gosa, you don't have to remember this, but just so you've heard it, all these Pali names, but named Buddha Gosa, who had written a number of different works, he wrote his most influential and important work, and it's not a commentary, it's really a treatise that's hundreds of pages, this big, thick book, and basically it pulled together into one book the commentarial understanding of what the, of the Pali Suttas for the whole path of meditation practice. So of all, that's the history that I just gave you. But I want to just say, here's what's important to remember of all that. I'll just summarize out of it. There's these Pali Suttas, and then there's this commentarial, this treatise that was written 900 years later. Um, I'll give you the name of it. It's one of these long tongue twister names called with a V, Vasudhimaga. Some of you will hear Vasudhimaga. Very, very important text. means the path of purification. The Vasudhimaga is so important because for many Theravada Buddhists, um, this the whole understanding of the path of meditation is filtered through the lens of this Vasudhimaga. For many other Theravada Buddhists, they would say, some people would actually say he got it wrong. Or people like me would say, not that he got it wrong, but it's really a, a new, it, he was an innovator. Really, we have two, within, so here's what I want to say. And what I'm about to say here is controversial. But, so some people would say that I'm wrong about what I'm about to say. Um, I am right, by the way. <laughs> it's not a right or wrong in these different systems. There's not a right or wrong. But they're two different systems. 
the, the meditation pra- approach to pra- meditation practice in the Pali Suttas is a different system than the meditation path of practice in the Vasudhi Marga. And I'm gonna, so I'm just putting some statements out here without, you know, we, we could spend a whole day really going into is it really true or not and why, but I'm not the only one who says it. If you really look at it, it's hard to get away from that. But, um, there are two systems. <laughs> so, one of the reasons there's different understandings is some people are saying, well, right samadhi, as you're going to see in a minute, we're going to come back to right samadhi. This is what it is. And other people are saying it's this. It depends on what system you're in, and you can only understand it from within its own system. So we're not judging one system or another as being right or wrong, but you're going to see there's two different ways at least to understand what right samadhi is. And I'm not telling you one's the right way. I'm right. So if anybody says this is what it is, they're leaving out half the picture. Okay. All right. So, for those of you who've been around the insight meditation scene in this country, maybe not just this country, it might be in the whole West, but uh, for any length of time, there's a range of ways you'll hear teachers talking. You'll often hear uh, people say, one example will be that insight meditation is equated with mindfulness meditation. They use the terms interchangeably, right? And mindfulness is kind of everything. And many times teachers won't talk about concentration at all. You just won't hardly ever mention it. And, and really the idea being just being just by practicing mindfulness the best you can, whether it's moment to moment in daily life or in sitting meditation, you'll naturally get all the concentration you need and you don't have to think about it. It's all mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Other teachers will will go the other spectrum and say, no, 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 that's not right. You have to focus on concentration. It's a big deal. And in fact, you have to j- cultivate these very special meditative states, which we're not going to get into much tonight, but they're called jhana with a J, jhana. So you'll hear people, th- we're going to say a little bit about jhana tonight. It turns out, that by the way, get to the punchline, the suttas define a right concentration of the Eightfold Path as jhana, as the four jhanas. So we have to explain that in a minute. That's just clear. It's explicit. Uh, we'll come back. That does not mean if you don't have jhana, you don't have right concentration. So don't despair. We'll come back to that. So, that's two in, and then there's all, what, everything in between from what teachers do. So I'm a teacher who's, I'm kind of in between. I think Samadhi and John is a big deal, a real big deal. If you go out any, you know, I've got posters for my retreats out there and John is in the title of the retreat. But I don't say you have to get John. I don't think you have to get anything. There's no gotta get. Anytime, believe me, take it from me. If you have the words in your mind come out, I gotta get. You're already set up for suffering. I happen to teach, and again, it's not like one style of teaching is better than another. They're just these different styles. I teach in a way that says, let's not um, undervalue the importance of samadhi. We want to appreciate how important it is, and the Buddha made a big, big deal about it, and we, I could give you some quotes, but you know, he, he emphasized it a lot. But let's come from a place that don't have to get anywhere. We just connect with our present moment experience the best we can with mindfulness. Try to just be at peace, let go of our suffering, and don't have any kind of striving idea at all. And then from that place of just being relaxed in the present moment, yes, let's practice in ways that naturally head us towards strengthening concentration. Any of you who've ever tried to take on a mindfulness practice, if you didn't have concentration developed, and I, I bet many people here can relate to this, right? You say, okay, whatever. I'm going to try to be mindful in my daily life the best I can. So, okay, I wake up in the morning and whatever. You're mindful of brushing your teeth or you're driving your car and you're, and then eight hours or two days later, you kind of wake up and say, oh yeah, I forgot. I'm trying to be mindful. <laughs> Let me try again, right? That's an example of mindfulness without Concentration, supporting it, because the mind's just too diffuse. When this undistractedness of mind is strong, you're naturally more present and awake and clear 
more and more of the time. I don't know, if, not saying you would never space out or anything, but you, and that stream of presence and wakefulness and mindfulness is just flowing through more and more. So the important, you can see right there the importance of having some kind of a, a less distracted mind that not only when you're sitting in formal meditation, but just through your daily life, it carries through too, the importance of it. Okay. So there's a big range of how people teach. Why is there such a big range? Well, if we go back to this Vasudhi Maga, which is that text written 900 years later, the commentarial understanding, it actually divides the path of meditation into two separate paths. It's, it's explicit. There's the path of tranquility and there's the path of vipassana insight, which is vipassana. The path of tranquility, samatha in the Pali language, if you're interested, what that path says is you first develop concentration and you go all the way to these states called jhana. And they're actually meditative states, that first kind of samadhi I talked about, which is what we call one-pointed, where you lose the change, of the flow of change, you can't experience change anymore. Well, you can't do insight when you're in that, because for, for insight, what do you need? You need changing experiences, because what is insight meditation? It's deep understanding or seeing or knowing what we call the three characteristics, right? You, you really get the, the truth of impermanence. So I'm throwing a lot of stuff out here. Pretty, are you guys hanging in here with me okay? Insight is you really understand the changing flow of experience, that, that things are impermanent, so we hopefully don't cling so much. You understand dukkha, what we call suffering or unsatisfactoriness. You really get it, but you have to, you have to connect deeply with changing experiences or the selfless nature of our, of our own being. Well, in this fixed one-pointed concentration, remember I said you lose the awareness of changing experience because you're fixed on a point? That's the jhana of the Vasudhimaga of that 900 years later text. But that's what they tell you they want you to do. It, they describe it real clearly. It's not the, a subject to debate or different interpretations. You can't feel your body if you could get into these states, right? Not everybody does that. So you, you go, get so concentrated, you get into this jhana, and it's all this bliss is described in all these different ways. It's really, they're wonderful states, very pleasant. And, and then you have to come out of the, that jhana to a lower level of samadhi so that you can reconnect with changing experiences. And then you turn your mind to other kind of practice, which is insight meditation, which is the, ins, which is how we teach insight here. It's just mindfulness of, your body and feelings, experiences, mindfulness of everything, right? But you have some strong concentration left over from the, that jhana meditation that you got into. That's one path of practice in the Vasudhimaga. So let me say again, you go into these jhanas, you gotta come out of it, and then you can do insight. The Vasudhimaga also has a second path of meditation, which is you're not interested in jhana, you don't try to ever get jhana. It's, you don't want jhana, and it's just called the path of pure insight. And you just go directly, and, and, you, and it's, it's what we talk about, just by using your mind. You know, you, you get as much, you get enough concentration, but you never get like, like jhana concentration. Still, still can be pretty strongly concentrated. That's our whole scene in this country, is the pure insight path of the Vasudhimaga. Why did that happen? Because when teachers like Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and others who had studied in Asia in the late 60s and in the early 70s. And they had studied with a number of different teachers, but when they came back here and started teaching, they started teaching in a style from one particular great Burmese master named Mahasi Sayadaw. For the Burmese, the Vasudhimaga is, I'm making these generalizations that might not be 100%, but for the Burmese, that Vasudhimaga is extremely influential, these two paths and everything. And this guy was a pure insight meditator. That became our whole scene. In other countries like Thailand, for example, uh, Vasudhimaga, much less, and you'll find a lot more people there who think it's just, they would either say it's wrong or they might be like me or just say, you know, it's just a different system than what's in the suttas. Again, it's a different system. <laughs> 
So our whole scene, just because of historical, I don't know if it's a historical accident, I don't know, maybe I, that's, I don't know if things are accidents, but it's become a whole scene. If they happen to have come back and taught in, in a style of many, many, many other ways it could have come, our whole scene might have looked completely different. And in fact, if you go back to what the polysuttas, remember I'm saying it's a different system? The polysuttas never separate, uh, they never clearly separate meditation into two separate paths like that. Matter of fact, there's no such thing as vipassana, insight meditation in the polysuttas. doesn't exist. Can't find it. In the Pali Suttas, insight is something you get. So I'm going to say more about that. It's not a type of practice. In the Pali Suttas, concentration, mindfulness, insight is all synthesized into one because you're doing a different kind of samadhi. It's that second kind of samadhi where rather than fixed concentration where you can't feel changing experiences, it's the second kind where the mind comes to stillness, total absorption, jhana, I mean, you get all the bliss, all the, but the flow, the changing flow experience is not lost, and it's explicit there in the suttas. Different state. So in the, in the, so let me say again, in the Vasudhimaga, if you go for right samadhi, which is, is described in the sut, in the, it, it, which is, which is explicitly The four jhanas, there's four stages of jhana. We won't get into that tonight. Four jhanas. Um, And then you have to come out, turn to insight meditation. Or if you want, I'm just recapping because I'm throwing so much information. Separate path, which is pure insight. That's why you don't hear people talking about samadhi much in our scene because that's it's right out of the Vasudhimaga, pure insight path. Suttas, it's different. Oh, and by the way, in what I was just talking about, that's where you can see mindfulness is equated with insight, and then there's this other thing called concentration, which, yeah, if you want to do it, it's fine, but you're not doing insight meditation. In the suttas, mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, are are considered to be the practice. They're not considered insight. They're considered to be the practice that leads to right samadhi, which is jhana, but it's this inclusive jhana th- through which one attains insight. The insight's not a separate practice. All these are synthesized together. Okay, that was a whirlwind tour through samadhi. So um, I realize that, but so maybe some of it might stick. <laughs> So we're going to spend, I'm going to say a little bit more, but we're going to actually open up for a lot of discussion because, but really, if I want to talk about right samadhi, I I couldn't really do it. It's hard to do it in one talk. So I realize we just hit a lot of things fast. The main things to remember is these two different systems, two different types of samadhi, this fixed or this, or the, or choiceless awareness kind. They both can go all the way to these states known as jhana. Don't remember, don't worry if you don't know what jhana is. It's, you can practice in a style out of the commentaries where there's two separate paths and you, and, and it's obvious. I'm sorry, I'm just recapping. It's obvious how if you practice in that style, you do have to have two paths because in fact, if you take concentration all the way, you've got to do this other kind of practice called insight. You can't do insight in Vasudhimaga jhana. Or if you choose, you can just go to pure insight. Suttas don't do that. It's a different, the right samadhi is still uh, the four jhanas. But there's not, but the insight comes out of the concentration practice. You don't separate them out. Okay? It's actually not that complicated. I mean, there's a lot of details in there. Well, when I say it's not that complicated, it reminds me when I was in engineering school, Many years ago, my uh, undergraduate degrees in electrical engineering, and I had to take a mechanical engineering course, and um, it was tough. You had to know all this calculus, and you've taken, you know, it was it was hard. Uh, but when we came in the first day. Um, the instructor said, "Look, the, it's very simple. All you have to know is one formula: force equals mass times acceleration, and that you can't push on a rope." <laughs> so that's all you have to know. <laughs> 
you know, he was right in a sense, but, you know, underneath that, that comprised a lot of detail, so. <laughs> it's kind of similar, so we just kind of looked at the basic thing. So, how should we practice? Guess what? I have good news for you. As far as I'm able to tell, people seem to have gone very deep in their practice and, go, and we have these great masters who've practiced in all these different ways. So it's more a question of of these different styles or if you show up at different groups or you meet different teachers or you read different books, what style resonates with you the best? It's not a right or wrong. I'm very respectful of all these styles and it's more what fits each of us. We're not all the same. And if we can hold that attitude in our mind, then we don't get into these Dharma wars, right? About, about, about you know, well, you got it wrong, he got it wrong, you shouldn't practice like... I mean, just on jhana alone, the range of views about what, what it is, well, those, those disagreements just go away when we finally realize there's two different systems. There's actually two completely different jhana systems out there. And we can relax. And remember, you don't gotta, I'm saying it in funny language, you don't gotta get anything. (laughs) So one last thing. Remember I said that right samadhi, right concentration, you you can see why I don't like the word concentration because it has the connotation of focus concentrated on something. If we think of it as, so we're going to continue to use the word concentration because everyone does. But if we think in our mind, we translate it to mean undistractedness, then yes, we can be undistracted because we're focused on a point. We can also have an undistracted mind that's more of this open awareness. So it, it's, it, it's more accurate. So we said that right samadhi is explicitly defined as being what are called the four jhanas, as these four stages of jhana. So I like to think of it a little differently, and this is not what the suttas say. The suttas say right samadhi is the four jhanas. So this is just me. It's not the Buddha talking. I think it's more useful to think of it as right samadhi culminates in the four jhanas, but it's always right samadhi wherever you're at, as long as we have, you know, right intention and right effort and all these other parts of the Eightfold Path the best we can. We're not expected to be perfect at all of them, but the best we can if we're incorporating them in too. I call that right samadhi. And and, and I think that's more useful because otherwise it's just like unless you've got jhana and which jhana will depend on which teacher, you'll never have right samadhi. And so I don't don't know how that... Then we can get into over-striving and judging and comparing. I don't know if it's that useful. So, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to, op- for, I'm going to open it up for any comment or question for anyone, but first I just want to ask, and I know there's about 25 people here, so it may not be true for everyone, but to, to get, take the temperature of the group, just in general, you, did you get the basic idea? Did that make sense? I was aware of clipping through the material pretty quick, and we hit a lot of, okay, I just want to make sure you get the basic idea. All right, so now we can just open up if there's any um, comments. It could be right samadhi or anything we've talked about over the four weeks. Anyone? Hmm? Um, I think I had a bit of a problem following. Um, you said that the Burmese tr- tradition, um, following the one text that I'm not going to try to pronounce. The Vasudhi Magga. Yes. Yeah. I don't know that everybody in Burma, but I'll just say in general... The Vasudhi Magga, as a generalization, is is very influential in Burma. Okay, and that's what has sort of been brought, in a sense, to the West from the teachers that studied yes. there. Though it sounds like that type of samadhi, where they're having to kind of take a step back, it sounds like almost to go back to vipassana and and this mindful meditation doesn't seem to make as much sense to me at least as the one from the sutta where you're just open to the experience. It it almost seems like that is more in line with the Vipassana tradition because you're getting to a point where you're concentration but you're still open to everything. You're not sort of so could you maybe 
speak to that a little more? Well, I'm not sure what, you know, it's, we're all going to resonate in different ways. And part of it also is, so first of all, yes, it's true that, and by the way, it's not just how we talk about concentration. There's many of the practices that are just standard part of our whole scene. It's Vasudhi Magra, for example. I'll come back to your question in a minute, but like metta meditation, many of you do it and you'll have these phrases, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And you have, like you work with a range, if you've done these practices formally, like you'll have the benefactor, a neutral person, a difficult person, and you work with it. That's all the Sudhi Magra. None of that's in the suttas either. It doesn't, doesn't take away from it. Suttas don't explain any of that. The suttas just, they talk a lot about cultivating the state of metta, of loving kindness, and radiating it out. But that's it. There'll just be a little paragraph radiated out. That'll appear th- in a number of places in the suttas. There's no, none of this, all these details of practice, all the Sudhi Magra. Really so much of our scene. Well, but what I'd say is, is this. Most people that you talk with, it's people don't, it, I don't think many people have been aware of these different styles. They just know it's one thing. They don't, most people wouldn't say, well, there's these two systems, but we're doing one system. Most, even of the Dharma teachers, would just say, well, this is how it is. And you'll hear many Dharma teachers say, well, if you want to do concentration practice, it's okay. But just remember, you're not doing insight meditation, so you want to be conscious. Right? Haven't many of you heard people talk like this before? So it's just, remember, what I'm saying is controversial because the people who are the adherents of the Vasudhi Magga, they would say, no, Shankman's wrong. If you want to understand what the suttas are saying, it explains it right here in the Vasudhi Magga. It's not, there's not this one style of meditation. The Vasudhi Magga tells you what concentration is, and it's like this. They're not saying, oh, well, should I pick this style or that style? The Vasudhi Magga is very clear. There's this one style. It's this narrow, fixed, one-pointed. And if you want to have more of this open awareness, it's not a, it wouldn't take it all the way to jhana. It would be a lighter form of concentration. But that's just one understanding. But if, for example, if you go out on the table, you know Ajahn Tanisaro, or who we call Tan Jeff, whose books are all out here for free? So he's practicing and, and teaching in, uh, very similar in what I'm called sutta style. Matter of fact, he's going to have a class here in April doing a day long talking on this exact topic. You'll, you look on the sati, you know, sati, s-a-t-i, sati.org. You'll, the description will go up maybe in another month or two and he's saying this exact same thing in the suttas. It's one practice that integrates mindfulness, insight, concentration, jhana into one thing. So, it's finding what fits for you. Another thing I would say is the way concentration un- naturally unfolds for each of us is going to vary. So if nobody gave you any instructions and they just said, stay with your breath, stay with your breath, and you just went off on your own, f- for some people, naturally, it would tend to just get more narrowly, narrowly fixed concentration. and You'd head in that direction. And for some people, you naturally would go more in this You'd stay more, actually the awareness would open up through the whole body more. All the foundation, by the way, when you go into the sutta style jhana, the mind naturally opens up through all the foundations of mindfulness too. You're not, you're not only is the mind undistracted, but just awareness of the body and the states of the mind and the heart, it's all just there. Right? That's how the insight can happen within the state. So you would naturally unfold in your own way and it would vary for each of us. So then it would depend, if you knew you wanted to go in a certain way, you would actually look and see. That's why when I teach, I don't give one kind of instruction for people. I don't have a one-size-fits-all instruction. I know where I want to head you. I call it fourth jhana. And you're starting wherever you're at. And so you practice, and we have to see what happens. How's it unfolding? And depending on what happens, you have to vary the instruction. So if you started getting more narrowly and narrowly focused, like heading towards a Vasudhi Magga style jhana, if you wanted to do that, I would be supportive of you to do that. But otherwise, I would give you specific practices to open it up into the sutta style open jhana. On the flip side, if you naturally were heading towards this open style and you wanted to head towards it, we'd have to know what was happening. And it's kind of like um, the story of Ajahn Chah, who... A uh, well-known story where one of the students came complaining to him that, that he was inconsistent. And he, would, he said, Dajan Chai, you know, sometimes I see you and you give this kind of instruction. And other times you give 
you contradict yourself or you're, you're given the opposite instruction. And Ajahn Chah said it's like he sees someone walking down the road and there's a ditch on both sides. And if they're heading off to the left, he's saying, go right, go right. But if they're heading off to the right, he's saying, go left, go left. Really, that's what we need to do in meditation practice. We have to see for each one of us how is it unfolding. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but so we, we have to know where do we want to get. It's not one right way. And then how's it actually going for us? And, and then that depends on the, what we give, how you practice. I wanted to ask a question about right effort, uh, which you did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it seemed to me that you talked about that it was, was an attitude of ease and that it was relaxing and you were checking in to see if so, you were suffering. But I didn't get the sense of what the right effort should be applied to. And when I've looked at some books, it seems that the right effort should be applied to all of the steps in the Eightfold Path. Is that right? Well, sure. But look, but what you're doing on all the steps, if you think of it, the steps of Eightfold Path, or I would take it even further, not just all the steps of Eightfold Path, any moment of your life, you know, what's the effort that's needed or that, that would be right at any moment? So you apply it to whatever you're doing. So if you're applying it to sitting down and doing mindfulness of breathing meditation, that would be, we would talk about effort with that. If you're talking about being mindful in, Walking meditation, we would talk about that. If you were talking about just bringing some awareness to, let's just say, right speech in your life, then well, what's the amount of effort you'd bring into that? So one thing we should say when we use the word right effort, one person came up to me, I don't know if it was from this class, but recently someone, and, and I, I didn't, wasn't aware of this before, the real sense of the word, the, the meaning of right effort is right doing, if you will. Because when they heard the word effort, it always meant there's some efforting going on there. But what we mean by right effort is just the right amount of effort or the right degree of applying ourselves in the right way into the right intensity for whatever we're doing, right? So sometimes the right degree or an amount and style of applying ourselves is in a sense of it can feel very like a lot of effort, and that's okay, right? If it's appropriate and we're not tying ourselves up in knots and overstriving and getting tense, we can actually work very hard towards something, right? No matter what we're doing, meditating or anything. And there's other times where it's a lighter sense of doing, you know, it's a light touch. And there's other times where the sense is not even so much of a doing. It's I, I, I don't remember if we talked about this when we did two weeks ago, but I like to shift. Instead of using active voice, I like to use passive voice verbs. And it's more like allowing, receiving your experience, letting be. You're still bringing some, there's still awareness of what's happening. You're not spacing out. But it's not even a sense of doing at all. It's just a sense of presence and knowing and being, it's a real receptive quality. That will be the, that will be right effort, right, sometimes. So what it looks like varies. It varies for each of us are different. And for each of us through the course of our lives or even for the course of the day, depending on how much energy we have and everything, it, it, it just changes. I don't know. I, I don't know how to be more, is that okay or? Well, I was thinking of a book I read recently on the Eightfold Path, and one of the things was to uh, get rid of negative thoughts. And you can go to, uh, seems to me that what it said is you can go to a, a very extreme degree and sort of force the thought out of your mind. And so uh, it, that, I guess that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. That seems very effort, effortful. Well, that, that is effortful, but yes, so the, but the Buddha has a list of these steps of, of dealing with like difficult mind states like this, and he goes through a, a level of, and, you know, the first steps in there are, are gentle. They're like, you know, there's, you know, there'd be things like turning the mind towards something positive if you, if you have negative, or, um, putting your mind in a different direction or things like that that aren't so effortful. But he goes through all the steps and at the very end, the, the, the last step is, and I think he says, 
you really use this intense willpower to just grind, I think he says, like crushing mind with mind or something. I mean, it's almost a violent image to crush it down. So it is in there. So I guess what I would say is we want to have all these in our tool kit. The question is when do we, we need to know when to pull which ones out. Because sometimes we try to crush down something with the effort of mind, say a negative mind state, and it could be create generating a a worse mind, another negative mind state. You know, it's coming out of aversion. So we have to know, or other times it might be useful. Uh, I can just give you a quick example. I was, I, I might, if you, let me know if I, I can't remember if I use this as an example of right effort, but I often, two weeks ago, but I often do. I was on a very long retreat, and after I'd been sitting for a number of months, I was in this beautiful state of mind, and uh, one day I woke up and my mind was just burning in hatred. I say hatred, it was pretty negative. Of course, everybody was in silence, so nobody, unless they had psychic powers, they don't know what was going on in my mind. But, you know, I'd walk through the meditation center, doing, but everybody who passed, you know, my mind would, you know, it was, it was nasty. And then it would happen, and I was just shocked. And like, well, what's going on? I don't even know why it happened. And so, you know, I would, first I was trying yelling at myself. You know, the person would go past me, the mind would just, something nasty about them. The next thought would be yelling at myself, Shankman! <laughs> That didn't, wasn't helping. All right. I tried doing loving kindness metta practice. I tried kind of forcing and positive. I was just trying so many different things, different styles of types of things and different degrees of intensity and none of it was working. So finally after I ate lunch, it was just getting so bad. I just finally decided, I just said to my mind, fine. That's the way you're going to be about it. We'll just go back to the room. I'm just going to lie here on the bed. And you know what? Go ahead. You just burn in hate. Go for it. Have a nice time. And so and I, w- I had a lot of mindfulness, and I'd been on retreat, I think I was on months and months, so I was quite undistracted mind. I just laid there. And it was more of a non-identification strategy I took, and I just let it just do its thing. I wasn't like saying, oh, this is me, I'm terrible. I wasn't trying to push away. It was just like, okay, nothing else is working, just burn. And all I did was let myself feel the suffering of, of, a, of a mind of hate and connected with the dukkha and just laid there. And after, I don't know, some period of time, it just kind of washed through and I was in a very just nice state of mind again. I got up and went about my day. You know, these states come and go. So, But, but anyway, it's an example of you know, maybe there were other things I could have done, but of, of what was the right amount, type of effort, and right amount of effort. It just varies. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so that to me was a very complicated, um, it, it just, for me, meditation has always been, I've been a long time meditator. Yeah. And it's been, pretty simple. And I'm kind of new to Buddhism over the last yeah. year. So, but hearing you, it, does this, is this working at all? Okay. Hearing you ultimately isn't the, the goal or objective to let go of suffering. Yes. So all of the things that you talked about for, you know, that period of time just seems like it's very, it, it's, it's, Are you talking about the example I was using when I was bur- No, I'm talking about, I loved hearing the, kind of the history of what you Oh, were you mean this whole about. talk tonight? Yeah. Complicated in a way that it's new for me. Yeah. But it's interesting because I've been meditating for 25 years. Right. So, the, and also Buddhism, I'm just learning. So right. it's just about, it feels like, you know, why do there have to be so many different states? Or, yes, I know there's different You mean techniques. different meditation states or different meditation techniques or approaches? Well, the sa- you said there's like the second sadhi. What did what'd you call it? Sadhi? No. I'm not other. sure. The second what? You. Samadhi. That's it. Samadhi? Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So the different kinds of samadhi. Well, there are different kinds of samadhi depending on how you practice. You Not just in the text, but people really experience things in different ways. Okay, so it's not just one way. People. So no, that I understand, and even for me, over my, over the years, one works, you know. Then I yeah, go yeah. to something else, and so is that kind of what you're talking about—that you can explore within, based on 
how you arrive at something if the ultimate goal is to let go of suffering? Right. Yeah, but I would even say it. So what you're saying is exactly right. You've taken it down kind of to the pith, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an ending of suffering. So what we'd say is, so I'll use this example I often use, um, the old Meher Baba poster from the 60s. It just said, don't worry, be happy. Mm-hmm. And so when I would see those posters 40, 50 years ago, I would just go, in the moment, it'd just be, oh, that's so right, and something would let go in my mind. But then it did, whatever would happen, I'd still get caught up in all my suffering and everything. So it wasn't so simple. You can say let go of suffering, but then well, why do we still suffer if we, uh, so we, that we practice, right? Because there's conditioned patterns in our mind that still get caught, right? Mm-hmm. And so then it's just a range of skillful means, not, and the point is not to make it complicated. You can keep it as simple as you want. You don't have to go out and learn 100 techniques. You don't have to have studied all these texts on the books, but I'm just saying tonight happened to be on right samadhi, and I could have just given a uh, simple, like probably a lot of teachers would come in and say this, but I, if you really want to understand right samadhi, I really laid out the range of understandings within our tradition. So it did seem complicated tonight because I was talking about a lot of different ways. If you go to a particular teacher, they're going to tend to just have out of that the way they teach, and it will, will be more simple. If you stick around the scene for any length of time, you'll get exposed to different teachers and you'll start to notice they're not all teaching the same way. It's not, doesn't have to be complicated either. And then you might say, I don't relate to that much and you'll just keep it simple. Or you might say, well, I'm kind of, and you'll keep it simple, but you'll be doing a different style of practice. Mm-hmm. So you always want to keep it simple. Uh, I appreciate what you're saying. And what I would just say is, if we have more tools in our toolkit, you know, there are times when I'm keeping it simple, but, I, you know, it's nice that I have a, uh, Phillips had screwdriver and not only had a hammer. Yeah. Or now I've got a, a coping saw rather than only a table saw all the time. So we get more tools, but really it's all the art of knowing what is just needed in a moment. Yeah. And let me clarify, com- complicated but clear. So what you were saying I was understanding. Oh, good. Well, at, that's good. Yeah. But at I'm glad the to hear that. Time, you know, I didn't realize in this practice that there were various means of um, as many means of getting there. Right. But if you just come and hang out at this center, you probably have, you don't hear what I've said here much, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying nobody could, like Gil knows all this stuff, but you just won't hear all this stuff. It'll just be kept simple. But if you really want to know the range in our, uh, in just our tradition of Buddhism, we've just stayed in Theravada Buddhism. I mean, there's a big world of Buddhism out there. Um, you know, Buddha, there's a lot of, you know, because Buddhism is not, you know, the Buddha, one of the core teachings is that all things are changing due to causes and conditions. They're not fixed and permanent. Well, Buddhism is a, is a conditioned phenomena. We shouldn't expect it to stay fixed. So after 2,500 years, it also is something that's, it's, it's, it's really a, Buddhism is a changing conditioned process like anything else. So it's not under, it's not surprising that over 2,500 years, the range of understandings and interpretations and types of practices have just proliferated. So it's a big world out there. So I don't know what, for example, I have no idea what different ways you've practiced in, so you didn't say, but just say, for example, we were to pick one of the Hindu-oriented yoga traditions. Well, you know, you could find a lot of complications in, a, you know, many styles of practice. And, you know, just wherever you go, there can be a lot there, Right? And our, our, what, what our, um, our job is, is to keep it as simple as we can, unless you happen to be interested in studying this thing, stuff, and that's fine. But from a practice point of view, keep it simple. Connect with your present moment experience. We let go of our suffering. We do keep it simple. Thank you. So we've reached the end of our, um, four weeks. And we've reached the end of our evening also. So, um, as you, for those, some of you have been around for some or all of the four weeks. Um, and actually, I, th- I appreciated this last comment that you made because I think it's a, it's a great ending that, uh, um, for all the different books and all the different Dharma talks and all the, what it really comes down to is, um, I'll end with what I call my clothes shopping analogy. 
So, you, you know, you go to the store and maybe there's whatever you're shopping for. Maybe it's shirts. There's a whole bunch of them hanging there, right? Or pants. Or I don't know what every shop for, right? And if something looks interesting, you take it off the rack and you try it on, right? Look in the mirror if you like it. Okay, I think I'll keep it. You know, if you don't like it, it's no big deal. It's not a fit. You just put it back on the rack and you find the one that's a fit for you. There's a wide range of skillful means out there, not one right or wrong way. So we want to always let our mind come back and not get too stirred up, but to stay simple. Find, like here, maybe some of you, I'm sure a lot of you, you know, work with Gil as a teacher or some people with Shiloh or whatever. You know, find someone you connect with. Keep it simple. Um, so just to end, please, I invite you just to take a few moments. We're going to take just a couple of minutes here to end since it's almost one minute to nine. Um, so just check in with your experience right now if, if you haven't already been doing so. Notice what's happening in your body. Just a, it might be some specific place you check in or maybe just a general sense. What's happening in the states of your mind or your heart? Just to hold your whole experience. Maybe some of the things, you know, maybe it was too much tonight on this talk and it's got you all stirred up, so just notice that. Or maybe... It clarified some things in your mind and you feel like, oh, and, and maybe the mind's actually something's let go in your mind. Notice that. Or just whatever's happening in your experience. And please notice how you are holding or how you're relating or being with whatever's happening in your experience. Can there be a sense of letting be or just non-struggle with your experience. Sometimes that's not so easy to do. So we do the best we can. Being kind to ourselves. And then take a moment to reflect on um, your wholesome intention or your good intention that brought you here for tonight or that brings you to activities like this. Right? For all of us, it's some version of how can we live more deeply from a place of wisdom, clarity, wakefulness, love, compassion, Right, all that's everybody in this room. I, I you know, I, I, you wouldn't be here if you weren't, or, or you might put in your own words, right? Non-reactivity, mindfulness, clarity, peace, right? Well, that's that's a beautiful intention to uh, so to reflect on that in yourself. That's a wholesome quality in you. Sometimes we don't take time to reflect on our own goodness. And to know that, um, you know, those powerful intentions, those beautiful intentions lead to action. In other words, you actually put things into practice the best you can. And we do the best we can, given where we're at. And because of that, shifts happen within us. It actually bears fruit. Even if it's only a little bit, when we aim the mind towards being more peaceful, it cultivates those qualities, more loving, more clear. Our ability to let go of our suffering increases. And, but it not only benefits us, it affects um, any, all those around us. And so we recognize that we cannot practice for We don't practice for ourselves alone, and we couldn't practice for ourselves alone, even if we wanted to. It's not possible. Right. Everything affects others also. And so to end with the dedication of merit, which is basically a recognition that we don't practice for ourselves alone, but for the benefit and liberation of all beings. So you can take it as a wish or a prayer or an intention. 
and you don't have to use words, but I'll just say it in words, um, for all the goodness, or you could say the good energy or good qualities, or if you wanted to say more traditional language, for all the merit. That's the way they traditionally would say it. But it just means the goodness. For all the merit that's come about from our time together, may it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful. And may all beings come to an end of suffering. So thank you all and have a good evening and perhaps I'll see some of you around in the Dharma world or wherever.